0: Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In today's episode, you'll hear from the historian and author Alice Proctor, who runs the Uncomfortable Art Tours. Alice is the author of the recent book, The Whole Picture, which explores how colonialism has shaped museums and galleries up to the present day she caught up with our editor, Rob Attar, a little while back to discuss some of the themes that emerge from her work.
1: Your book is called The Whole Picture. So what parts of the picture do you think are currently missing from museums and galleries?
2: So um, the title is a reference to the fact that when we talk about objects in museum spaces, we're often doing it in a very superficial way. There's a lot of emphasis on how these objects are made and how they sort of stylistically work and the beauty of the object is sort of first and foremost the thing that i really wanted to focus on was a sort of deeper history about where these objects are coming from and how they come to be in museums as part of that so the parts that i think we don't see tend to be questions of provenance and acquisition and things like the financing of these collections all of the sort of little details that are lying in the background that we don't tend to see in museum spaces. They're not often represented on the labels or in the gallery guides and that kind of thing. And so I really wanted to make sure that we could address some of this kind of more practical history of how the actual museums are created and how these objects come to be on show for us to see in the first place.
1: And why do you feel it is that the museums aren't actually showcasing or highlighting information generally?
2: I think sometimes there's this real fear that if you start talking about the provenance of objects, you'll open yourselves up for criticism. And it's definitely true that in some cases, the pieces that I'm talking about and working with have really contested histories. You know, they're acquired through violence or circumstances that are not legal at the time and are certainly not legal now. And so it's really important to make sure that people understand that history because it's a huge part of how museums tell stories and how they come into being if we don't discuss where these pieces come from, then we're missing a huge part of their histories and their biographies. Um, A lot of the objects that I work with have contested provenance or violent provenance, particularly associated with colonialism, and so they're pieces that are acquired through conflict or looting or other forms of violence. And when we don't address that, we're missing out on information, firstly. Secondly, these stories are often really, really interesting and they're a huge... Um, draw for audiences. And thirdly, and I think most importantly, when we don't address that, we erase and ignore the realities of these objects. We start to sort of skip over what really happened. And that undermines the work of museums, but it also harms the communities of descendants of the people that created these objects or that maybe are seeking them for repatriation or restitution, because people don't understand why these pieces might be so important.
1: So restitution is clearly a big subject and feeds into your book a lot. What do you think should happen to artefacts that have been acquired by, shall we say, dubious means?
2: So that's a huge question for a start, um, because the dubious histories of all of these objects are unique and specific to their circumstances, the first and most important thing to say is that we always have to consider these things case by case. There's no general rule. There's no kind of universal approach that we can take to these objects. But museums have a duty to research the provenance of these pieces and to make that provenance in history available to their audiences so that any member of the public that wants to find out more about this can. The way that I see it, museums have an obligation to help people understand what they're looking at. And in some cases, that might mean that the museums are also leaving themselves vulnerable to claims for repatriation and that sort of thing. I don't think they should be afraid of that. Um, I think it's really important for us to ask questions about who museums are for and how they function. We're very used to treating museums as these kind of untouchable things that no one can violate, no one can sort of remove the objects and they have to stay perfect and static forever. But I don't think that should be the case. I think museums should be willing to let go of pieces where it's not appropriate or considerate to keep them in their collections.
1: Why do you feel that museums as a whole have been quite reluctant to consider repatriation of objects? Is it the floodgate argument that they'll essentially have to empty the British Museum, so to speak?
2: It's, it's absolutely the floodgate argument, I think. Um, museums are invested in their own survival. That makes total sense. That's completely understandable and reasonable. Um, it's this idea that if you send one thing back, you'll have to send everything back. And that argument is really deeply flawed because not everything is sought for restitution. The circumstances in which all of these objects required are specific. Not every community of origin is going to want all of their artifacts back. What's actually happening here is that in many cases, indigenous nations or colonized communities are just asking museums to take better care of what they have. They're not necessarily saying, we must have this back. You must stop holding these objects. And the idea that if you let go of one thing, you have to let go of everything is very dramatic. Like It's a compelling argument to make because it's such a huge, terrifying thing to think that museums might cease to exist. But it's also just not realistic. There is so much room between those two extremes.
1: And I suppose another complication is that in some cases, there might be multiple people claiming an object, so it wouldn't be so simple as where it would go to after the museum.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And there are definitely like some of the most famous examples of contested objects fall into those categories. When you talk about something like the koh noor diamond, which is probably like one of the most archetypal contested objects, you're going to open an entire huge dialogue over who has the right to hold that piece. I'm actually less interested in where these objects end up than I am in the conversation about how they've come to be where they are now. I think it's much more productive and much more interesting when we spend our time thinking about how these objects could tell stories differently, right? The question isn't who has the ultimate legal right to this object. It's often more nuanced than that. It's about understanding how these pieces have traveled and what they've meant over time to the different people that have held them. And so what I really want museums to do is engage in that conversation. You know, it's a huge part of the history of these pieces that's just not being dealt with right now. And I understand why there's this fear about, you know, you let one thing go and everything will disappear, but that's not going to happen. And I think that anxiety often gets in the way of something more interesting and more creative.
1: For those objects where there isn't a question of, say, restitution, how do you think we could better present them?
2: Something I found in my work as a tour guide and as an educator is that people are actually really, really interested in understanding how these museums come to be. It's not a conversation that we have very often, right? A lot of people don't spend time thinking about how the British Museum was created. It's a bit of a niche subject. But once you start offering that information to people and they realize just how relevant it is and how connected it is to contemporary issues, then we have a completely different kind of experience. The creation of these institutions is something that's done against the backdrop of colonialism and imperialism. The same people that are involved in establishing these museums often have connections to um, the creation of Britain's overseas territories and colonies, and also frequently to histories of scientific racism and um, the creation of racialization and eugenics and the idea of a hierarchy of um, humanity, essentially. The foundation of museums is so completely entangled with that political history that when you talk about it, you have to include museums as part of that narrative. The whole concept of a museum as it's created in the 18th century is that it's a kind of treasure box where you can see The best and worst of the entire world. That's not something that we should really expect museums to be doing anymore. It's not who we are necessarily as a society. It's not who these museums should be trying to serve. But the people that create these institutions are trying to make the world in their own image. Every object that ends up in one of those collections is there because one of those people has made that choice. And when we talk about that and we think about those choices, it gives us so much more information about national history, national identity, the creation of these collections, that sort of thing. I think when museums don't talk about the provenance of objects that they hold and they don't talk about how these pieces come to be displayed and understood and translated into different circumstances, what they're actually doing is essentially withholding information. You know, it completely transforms the way that we engage with these pieces and relate to them and connect to them when we have that information available to us.
1: Do you feel that museums are still holding on too fast to their initial, perhaps you could say, enlightenment values that founded them?
2: I think in some cases, absolutely. I personally really dislike the term enlightenment because it's one of these phrases that sort of gets thrown around and there's this assumption that everyone, that it means the same thing to everybody, but it doesn't. You know, the creation of one person's enlightenment is to another person, the destruction of their history and culture. You can't have enlightenment without the history of the slave trade, the history of invasion and imperialism that comes alongside it. And when museums still use the idea of being enlightened as part of their foundations, they're ignoring that fact and they are sort of dismissing and neglecting to engage with that history. I want museums to be better at what they do. I want them to be more empathetic. I want them to be more engaged in addressing these stories. And as long as we keep falling back on this term enlightenment, that doesn't actually mean that much to most people. We've got this barrier between understanding the reality because we get caught on the word and Bring these assumptions about goodness and discovery and industrial revolutions and scientific progress and that sort of thing. And those narratives are deliberately framed in order to obscure the realities behind them.
1: The one thing that I thought was really interesting in the book was when you were talking about portraits and the fact that they don't represent the diversity of, of our history, but also there's a problem that most portraits were painted of those who were wealthy enough to have them. So where there are shortages of objects or paintings, relating to more marginalised groups. How can we represent them in museums? This is
2: such a tricky thing. Um, part of it comes down to the idea of like hierarchy of artistic value. There are images of people of colour in British history. There's so much information that has been really neglected and continually marginalised and ignored about the history of racialization and immigration to the UK from... Black populations in particular, but also Asian and Southeast Asian populations that have moved and traveled over time. Anytime you have a trade route or people going in one direction, people are going to come back in the other direction as well. And that's part of the history of Britain's kind of global trade and naval empire and all of that sort of thing. When we don't have images of those people, we have to ask ourselves, firstly, why those images weren't created, which is where we come to this question of power and privilege, but also try and find an alternative. It might not be possible to include a portrait of, for example, a South Asian person who lived in Britain in the 18th century, but maybe we can find an object that connects to those communities or represents that individual. Um, Maybe they are represented in cartoons and engravings, not in a painted portrait, but maybe there's another visual form that speaks to that history. Museums and art galleries in particular have this very firmly entrenched hierarchy of what's worth going on display. And we're very used to going into a gallery and seeing oil paintings and this sort of like very showy theatrical type of portrait. But we need to make space for other visual forms as well and recognize that just because the representations of people of color in Britain in the 19th century aren't Big showy oil paintings doesn't mean that those representations don't exist we can do the work of trying to find those paintings and also find ways of representing that negative space that's been left out when we don't have those representations something is missing and we have to try and make that absence visible if we can't show the portraits themselves still to come on the history extra podcast Generally speaking, if you feel a little off about something in a museum, I think you can trust your instinct. If you think something hasn't been given the kind of space and value that it deserves, think about why that might be.
1: Now, within the book, I think it's fair to say that directors and trustees of some of these museums do come in for a reasonable amount of criticism but would you say to some extent the visitors themselves are complicit in the sense that maybe complicit is not the right word, but are are involved in this too, because the museums may feel they're serving what the public wants.
2: Yeah. And I think that, I think that the extent to which visitors come into that is that frequently we're not really taught to be critical of these spaces. There's an element of trust that people assume they should have in museums. This idea that these are the repositories of history and we don't question history. Um, And what I hope people can learn to do from the book and also from my tours is just ask more questions about these objects. I don't blame anyone for not knowing this history beforehand. It's something that you have to really work to find. But the more visitors ask questions about it, the more people engage with these stories, the more likely museums are to reflect that. Change in these kinds of spaces does not come from the top. Um, it has to come from visitors. It has to come from members of staff, especially lower down the hierarchies or people who are working in education or learning departments, because they're the ones that have the most contact with visitors and therefore they have the most power to bring these new stories in and include these erased and marginalized and dismissed histories. I agree that the directors and trustees come in for a fair bit of flat, um, But I think that's because they represent the institutional values. It's not about them as individuals. It's about the kind of role that they play in maintaining the status quo in these institutions. And that's a pressure that comes from trustees and sponsors and two, 300 years of institutional history. It's not necessarily a problem for those individuals to fix, but it's something that I think they need to be conscious of. And hopefully we as visitors can also learn to push from below. And yeah, ask more questions, engage with these histories in a different way and provoke change.
1: And speaking of change, you talk in the book about some artists who have done some really interesting things around museum collections and sought to challenge the way they've been presented. Are there any that particularly stood out for you?
2: I really love the way that history can be re-evaluated by artists. I think while it's great that historians are doing this work and research and educators are doing this work and research, ultimately the most important thing is that it's made available and tangible and accessible. And that's where artists come in. I personally really love the work of Michael Rakowitz because I think he creates this beautiful creative space for memory and gives this very sensitive and very empathetic approach to the way that we commemorate things and remember things. So his work uh, in the book is a recreation of a grocery store that was owned by his grandfather. um, And he shipped dates from Iraq to America. I love another piece of his, which is called The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist where he recreates objects that have been lost in the Iraqi museums, pieces that have been destroyed or stolen. And he makes these very sweet, very charming copies of those objects out of food packaging and newspapers and bits of domestic ephemera. And to me, that tells us a story of how we remember things and how we hold objects. Kind of Museum pieces should be part of our personal histories and the way that we relate to them should be intimate and domestic and caring in that sense. It's a really beautiful way of making memory and commemoration available and visible. And so work like that is really brilliant. There are so many other artists that I wish I'd had space to include in the book um, that I was really limited by sort of time and space. But another artist who does something quite similar is an Indigenous Australian artist called Tony Albert, who again plays with colonial history and caricatures and stereotypes and these really violent racist images and subverts them and makes them relevant and engaging and contemporary and shows us a different way of looking at these historical figures that acts as a kind of gateway to looking at the history itself.
1: Now, are there any museums that you feel actually are doing this really well at the moment that are actually making the changes you think are needed?
2: It's really hard to single out specific institutions, because often the work that these institutions are doing comes down to individual members of staff. um, And I don't want to pick up on or single out any of those people uh, without their permission. But I think some of the most interesting work I've seen happening has been from museums outside of capital cities. There's a different kind of pressure on regional or local museums. They're serving a more specific community. They tend to have more repeat visitors from the same people rather than needing to appeal to a big, broad audience of tourists. And so there's more room to work slowly in those spaces. You can come back again and again to the same questions and same conversations and develop in a much more creative and much more, I would say, productive way. University collections are also a really great example of this. Manchester University Museum's recently Uh, repatriated a collection of human remains to Australia and returned them to the communities that the individuals whose remains had been held in the archives belonged to. That's a really fantastic example of a research institution recognizing their role in creating a new precedent for what museums should be doing more broadly. And I think that was really fantastic. And I hope that they continue to do that sort of work. I know that Manchester museums are currently looking at other contested objects in their collections and trying to set a new standard for how they treat these vulnerable pieces. Other university collections are doing similar things. There's some fantastic work going on. Um, the museums in Birmingham have been doing a really brilliant job of looking at uh, colonial history as part of the lo- sort of local identity of the region. And so there's a different kind of intimacy that you can have with collections when you're not appealing to millions of tourists. You can take your time and work more carefully. I think that's something that has been sort of underrated in museums. You know, We're so used to these like big blockbuster exhibitions where it's all about getting as many people through the door as possible, rather than creating a sort of sustained conversation around the same objects.
1: Since your book was published, we have of course had the Black Lives Matter protests, where colonial history has really been brought into the forefront of people's attention. How do you think that should shape how museums and galleries develop?
2: I think it's really important to note that this is not a new conversation. Um, There have been discussions around contested histories in museums for a really, really long time the arguments around monuments and statues and colonial commemoration in public spaces is something that's been going for years, if not decades, in all of these cases. You know, everyone saw the Colston statue coming down in Bristol, but that object has been up for debate for so, so long that this was sort of like the final five minutes of that history is all that anyone saw. And it's actually been a recurring subject of argument for decades. What I hope will come out of this moment is... There's a new sort of public understanding of how history is created. This is not about representing perfect truth or fact. History has never been about that in its public spaces. It's about telling stories. That's what museums do. That's what statues do. And hopefully, the sort of critical response that we've seen to public commemoration will also filter through to museum spaces. The types of questions that we're now seeing people ask about monuments and statues and just who is being commemorated are also the same sorts of things that we need to ask about art collections and portrait galleries and country houses and all of these sort of spaces of cultural heritage. I'm really excited to see what happens now and see how these conversations gain more and more sort of public momentum and keep coming back and getting stronger in these museum spaces and heritage spaces more broadly as well.
1: Now, at the moment, obviously, a lot of people are in some kind of lockdown, but hopefully at some point museums will open up again. When they do, what would your advice be to visitors who are going to these museums? How should they be looking at the objects there?
2: Something that I think we often forget to do in museums is read the labels really critically. There might be references to where the object came from, but look at the language that's being used in that space? Is something described as collected or acquired or donated by a certain individual? Like, does that tell us anything about where the piece originally came from? Who gets space in these galleries? Is it the patrons and the donors, or is it the makers who created these pieces? And that tells us so much really straight away about who gets value and power in these rooms. Think about how pieces are displayed as well. When you have an object on a plinth on its own with lots of space around it, that encourages us to see it as a high value object. The more room, the more light, the more kind of information and emphasis that's placed on an individual piece, the greater the value is, according to the museum narrative. When you have lots of objects in a smaller case, it's not as well lit, they don't have individual labels, it's a little more kind of cluttered, that's a sign that these pieces are not being valued in the same way. So learning to read the space and sort of following your feelings within that space, what are you most immediately drawn towards? What's the thing that sort of stands out the most and is the most visually engaging and appealing? And then think about how the museum has encouraged you to feel that way. Learn to read the ideologies in the architecture of these different galleries. That's the best place to begin. Generally speaking, if you feel a little off about something in a museum, I think you can trust your instinct. If you think something hasn't been given the kind of space and value that it deserves, think about why that might be. Is it because of the history of that piece, the history of the maker, the way that those objects have been valued and treasured over time in different ways? And go from there to doing more research and asking more questions.
1: Alice, I think I've been through everything I was going to ask you. Is there anything else you think we really should have discussed that we didn't?
2: The one thing I would say is that I don't want museums to cease to exist. I just want them to be better at what they do. And so the thing for me that is most important to my work is making sure that people understand the way that these institutions have been created. I would recommend anyone who wants to go to visit a gallery finds out about who established it and how it was established and why, because that will tell you so much about the way that these stories are still being told you have somewhere like the National Portrait Gallery that specifically states that its mission is to commemorate the great and the good of British history. And they should be military heroes and artists and politicians and royals. And so that tells you straight away about who's going to be in that space and who won't be included. And that gives us a really huge insight into how people have been left out of these spaces. Equally, though, you can go into a collection like that and see a lot of portraits of people that aren't really historically significant anymore, or that don't have the same sort of status and power that they did when that collection was created. And that tells us again, how these standards of power and value have moved over time. I also really want to be clear that um, everyone can enjoy things if they want to. I have some of my favorite objects, some of the things that I find most beautiful in museums are also some of the most problematic and difficult and contested pieces. It's not about saying this has a violent history and therefore I can never look at it again. It's about saying this has a violent history. How does that affect the way that I experience it? You can find something beautiful and also find it troubling at the same time. And I want to make sure people realize that and understand that. But also encourage them to ask questions about why they find it beautiful in the first place.
0: That was Alice Proctor. The whole picture, the colonial story of art in our museums and why we need to talk about it, is out now, published by Cassell. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for a discussion about the Anglo Saxon Chronicle.